Good morning, baseball fans, and welcome to episode 89 of the Morning Round Trip podcast here on October 6th, 2020. My name is Drew Frank, and I'm joined by my co-host, Liam Crothers. Hello and good morning. And last night we saw the ALDS kickoff. We see the NLDS kickoff tonight, but first things first, a few interesting notes from around the league we'll run through quickly. We touched on Theo Epstein meeting with the Cubs owners. Turns out that nothing's going to change, at least for this year. He says he expects status quo among their leadership group at least for one more season. Brewers GM David Stearns maybe a little bit different over there for the Brewers. He says that their payroll is uncertain and there might be changes for next year after what COVID did to finances. The full quote is he said, quote, I think budgets are tighter everywhere right now for most businesses. You know, over the last two years, we've run the two highest payrolls in the history of this organization, and I think it's uncertain at this point as we look forward whether our payroll next year will be at that same level. Kind of interesting, and I I, want to see where this goes because it's not just the brewers. A lot of people are in this same boat. Finance is affecting everyone differently. I mean, how about a team like Toronto, where they're not owned by an individual, they're owned by a company like Rogers? Does that help them? Does that hurt them? Another team I want to watch in this offseason is Boston. And here's why. Of course, they had a very tough season this year. But despite the fact that MLB's local ratings around the league increased by 4%, Nesson's ratings which is the local Boston broadcast, fell by 58% this season. A massive drop-off without bets, without much of a chance at contention, and a really awful start to their season. Their ratings went way, way down. What I want to ask you here is, do you think this encourages Boston to spend more and maybe go after a guy like Bauer? Or if they're not getting the ratings, they're not getting the interest, does that just deter them from doing that? You tell me Red Sox fans are fickle, and I tell you that the sky is blue. Boston is notorious for having one of these fan base cultures that really only cares about you if you're winning, and if you're not winning, then, you know, they'll find something else to do with their time. You mentioned Trevor Bauer. It was interesting because on his social media, uh, he ended up catching a flight to Boston, whether it be for personal reasons or for professional reasons uh, he did post it online and tweeted at the Red Sox hey you up just a little bit of a tease there for Red Sox fans because he would be quite the acquisition for them I don't know if they try to make a big splash in free agency to boost things up I think that you know not only was the team poor this year but no one was able to show up to the ballparks and even when the Red Sox aren't doing particularly well, they're usually able to fill some of the seats at Fenway Park just because of the venue that it is. It's historic. People like going out there for an afternoon game of baseball, uh, regardless of what the product is on the field. That being said, though, I don't know if they try to make a splash just because they're not really in the position to do so. I mean, does the acquisition of one player really expedite your rebuild any further? Does it make things go a little bit faster? Does it put more people in front of their TV screens to watch you play baseball? I don't think so, but I can't really say that a ratings drop because the Red Sox were poor surprises me all that much. And this might be a team that is waiting to see how many playoff teams will be in the hunt next year because if they do run with a 14-team format, 
if you expect a bounce back from guys like JD Martinez and a couple of their bats that struggled, and you expect a healthy sale and a healthy Eduardo Rodriguez, I mean, you add Bauer to that, you gotta figure you're in the hunt for expanded playoffs. So I think we see if it's 10 teams, probably not the same. If it's 14, maybe there's an extra chance. So that's something that will be directly affected by wherever Manfred goes with that. Next, Reese Hoskins, he had elbow surgery and should be ready in four to six months. It's worth noting this is not Tommy John, which is a full reconstruction of the elbow. This is just partial repairs, so he should be back sometime for early on, maybe opening day. We'll have to see what kind of timeline he's on. If it's on the longer end, he might just miss it, but should be there for the vast majority of 2021. And Austin Meadows, he also got some pretty positive injury news as he was in last night's game. He was placed on the ALDS roster, replacing Nate Lowe at the last minute yesterday, and he actually had a pinch hit at bats. Didn't do much with it. He struck out against Chad Green, but for the big picture here, the scope of the series, Austin Meadows is a guy that can really help to make a difference. Yeah, and Austin Meadows is a guy who, you know, doesn't necessarily provide a massive uptick. He's not by any means an Aaron Judge or a Giancarlo Stanton, but he's definitely a strong player to have in your lineup, and I'd take him over Nate Lowe any day of the week. But the Yankees, I don't really think they care about who was on the Rays roster in this game because they were going to hit home runs off of whoever they were facing. I mean, we saw a massive performance from Giancarlo Stanton. Man, does he love swinging the bat at Petco Park, not only in home run derbies, but in actual games. The Yankees really, really impressive with a 9-3 victory over the Tampa Bay Rays. I wouldn't necessarily call this one an upset, but definitely an interesting game when you break things down. And this game was close early on. The scoring got up there, but for the most part, it was pretty even right up until the starting pitchers left. And it was the Rays offense that just couldn't touch the Yankees bullpen. 4-3 lead for New York when Cole leaves the game. Snell, not great, but a one-run game. I mean, at the end of the day, that's not insurmountable. The difference is Tampa's bullpen gives up five runs and the Yankees' bullpen doesn't allow a single hit. Randy Rosarina went three for four with a home run, but his three hits made up half of the entire Tampa offense's hits. They only had six on the night, and that's kind of what you got to look at. Sure, they put up three runs, they do leave the yard, they they get some off coal, but... If they're not going to be able to hit the bullpen, that's an area we had targeted as one of the advantages Tampa had. A deep bullpen, a talented bullpen. Here, they got outperformed pretty handily by New York's. And I think the scoreline might be a little bit misleading because this game was 4-3 to three heading into the top of the ninth, but the Yankees decided to put some breathing room between themselves and the Tampa Bay Rays in this one. The bullpen, like you mentioned, if they were strong, if you're the Tampa Bay Rays, you head up in the bottom of the ninth, and if you've only got a one-run deficit, that's not insurmountable by any means, but watching your bullpen give up five runs in the top of the ninth to make that deficit just a little bit wider for you and to make that mountain just a little bit taller has to be demoralizing for the Tampa Bay Rays. Bit of a positive note though, as Shane McClanahan becomes the first pitcher to make his major league debut in postseason play ever. It's really interesting that the Rays decided to throw him out there in relief, Um, but 
the story of the game was the home run. And as we saw in the next game that we're going to cover between Houston and Oakland, the home run really has been the deciding factor so far in the 2020 postseason. And the one last note I do want to throw out here before we move on to that Oakland game is that Blake Snell goes five innings and only throws 84 pitches. Now, that's still a good amount of pitches, and five innings is a good amount of work. But if you look at the fact that he threw 108 in his final start against the Mets at City Field, we know there's no days off, but that might open the door to see him later on in the series. Just something to keep an eye on. If, if Snell goes 114, we probably wouldn't be talking about it, but there is an opportunity there. Now, moving on, another game that we saw with all sorts of offense, all sorts of home runs, as you said, 10 to 5 finish between Oakland and Houston. Houston comes out on top of this one, but the ball was just carrying out of Dodger Stadium yesterday. Six combined home runs between the two teams. It seemed like everything that was up in the air was leaving the yard. The last one by Correa, it looks like he was borderline jammed on the inner half, not fully extended, not even really barreling it too well, but it got out to dead center. I mean, that was just one of six. This game, similarly, both starting pitchers kind of got hit hard, but left the game at a similar point. They go four innings. When they leave the game, it was a one-run game. Four runs allowed by McKellars, three allowed by Bassett. The A's had a lead, but then again, we talked about how Oakland's bullpen should be better than Houston. Here, they lose it because Houston's bullpen is nearly flawless, going five scoreless, hitless innings with just one walk in relief, and Oakland's gives up seven hits and seven runs in the same span. And it's pretty interesting to me because we were both pretty critical of Houston's bullpen, not only during the regular season, but when the postseason began, we said that they didn't necessarily have the depth to match up against a lot of the teams that they had the potential to play. But I mean, hey, they're here proving us wrong. There's a reason we don't play these games on paper. You have to go out and play all nine innings on the diamond. So a strong performance from the Houston Astros top to bottom, whether that be through the bullpen or through the bats. George Springer with a four for five performance and Carlos Correa, another contributor with two home runs. How about Alex Bregman with a home run in this one for the fourth straight year on October 5th, Alex Bregman leaves the yard, a very weird stat, you know, not necessarily Mr. October, but maybe Mr. October 5th. Not necessarily a lot of competition there for him to reserve that nickname. So I like that the Houston Astros, though, have begun to embrace their role as the villain. I feel like at the start of the year, they tried to avoid things. They weren't really, you know, in touch with the media and they weren't really in touch with what people were saying about them. They tried to avoid it. They wouldn't speak on things. But we've seen recently from Carlos Correa, especially, he's really spearheaded things that, you know, this team has confidence. This team believes in themselves and, you know, with the ability that they have to play baseball regardless, they're going to go out there. They're going to play as well as they can play. And I mean, hey, they don't care if you don't like it, which I'm all for. I mean, if you did the thing that you did, embrace it. There's not really any way you're going to avoid what people say about you. So, I mean, you might as well run with it, right? Well, now they're running with a one nothing lead in this series. It is just a best of five, so that first game goes a long way. I still don't know if I fully believe in this bullpen. Guys that we've seen struggle, especially earlier on in the year, 
They've looked stunning so far. And between this game and the series against Minnesota, through 14 and two-thirds, their bullpen's yet to allow a run, a perfect zero ERA, and a 0.70 batting average against. That's just three for 43. Obviously, that is due for some regression. I don't think that holds up much longer. And I'm still optimistic for Oakland in this series. They get underway with Game 2 tonight, going up against Framber Valdez. It's Chaminet on the mound for Oakland, this game at 4.37 p.m. Eastern Time. I don't really know what to expect here. I do, looking at the pitching matchup, like Valdez. I think from what we've seen from him, you should probably be expecting a better outing from him, and he's shown the ability to go deep in games. We also haven't seen Manea pitch all that much. They elected to go with Fires over Manea for Game 3 against the White Sox. And you know how extended periods of rest and being out of your rotation can mess pitchers up. Still though, I, I think Oakland still comes away with this series. And if I'm saying that, I basically have to say they win Game 2 here. So I will go with Oakland, but I think there's a lot to like on both sides. Yeah, and I think that... Maybe with a little bit more familiarity, obviously, you had the season series that you played against them, but now you know how they're going to perform in the playoffs. So I think I go with Oakland over Houston in this one as well. And I think that that's mostly going to come from the fact that Oakland really can't afford to go down 2-0. Obviously, it's not the end of the world. You still have the opportunity to battle back from it, but, you know... Fighting back from a 1-1 series start off is a whole lot easier than battling back from down 2-0. Uh, Sean Manaya, we haven't seen in the playoffs so far, so I guess we will wait and see how he performs in his first postseason start against Framber Valdez. The only game going before that one is the Marlins visiting the Braves. Alcantara, Freed, two very talented starting pitchers on the mounds at 2.08 p.m. Eastern Time. I've got to go with the Braves in this one. I think Alcantara is very formidable, very intimidating on the mounds. But this Braves offense we see is much deeper, more talented, and versatile than the Cubs lineup that he dismantled his last time out. He was still burned by the long ball and potentially could be in trouble again. I think I like Freed and his ability to keep the ball in the park has been very, very good. And that's been ever so important in this postseason so far. We didn't see Freed give up a home run until his last start in the regular season. Uh, and both of these offensives have found runs to be at a premium. I think I go with Atlanta as well in this one. I just think that their offense has that much more firepower when they're on their day. And I like the matchup of Freed over Alcantara really any day of the week. So I'm going to take Atlanta to take game one here. But I mean, we saw an upset with Oakland and Houston you know, wouldn't necessarily surprise me because Miami is trying to retain that perfect playoff streak. They've never lost a playoff series, but against Atlanta, it is tough competition, no doubt. Yankees, Rays, they continue their series. Game two gets underway tonight at 8.10 p.m. Eastern, and it's Davey Garcia on the mound for the Yankees. And I think this is interesting because I was expecting Masahiro Tanaka here. They push him back to game three without really explaining why could be a way that they're trying to line up the pitchers for the ALCS if they make it. It could be because they want Garcia going maybe half a start here, getting to the bullpen and having him for Game 5. 
I don't know, but we will see Garcia starting this one. He becomes the youngest Yankees starter in their franchise history to start a postseason game at just 21 years old. Taking the record away from Whitey Ford, who pitched Game 4 of the 1950 World Series just before his 22nd birthday. So, history there for Garcia. He goes up against the very talented Tyler Glasnow. Who do you like in this one? Well, Tyler Glasnow, in his three starts against the Yankees this year, got better and better every time out. Started out with four earned runs against and then two earned runs against until on August 31st, he was able to go six innings of no run, two hit ball. Uh, That being said, though, in Glasnow's last start of the regular season, he only threw 76 pitches now, whether that be because you wanted to keep him ready for the postseason or not. I guess we will find out, but... I think if they can get to Glasnow early, or at the very least, wait him out, I go Yankees over Tampa Bay. I mean, they looked so good against the Cleveland Indians, and they looked fantastic in Game 1. I think they've got a ton of momentum behind them, and I mean, I think they sort of stunned Tampa Bay in that first game, and maybe they're going to try to capitalize here and take a very quick 2 nothing series lead. I'll go here with Tampa, actually, because I do think if we have been looking at how dangerous the long ball's been, I like the odds of taking Garcia deep more than Glasnow, especially, like you said, as he's gotten better and better. And he was a guy that struggled with not having the same type of lead into the season, the shorter summer camp, the start and stop with the fake start in spring training in March. But since then, he's looked better. Mid-season form seems to be hitting him right around now. I like Lasno. I like the Rays. And finally, the fourth game on our schedule tonight, the Padres and the Dodgers get underway 9.38 p.m. Eastern. We know it's Walker Bueller, and we've known that for a few days. We have no clue who's going for the Padres. We'll probably know when they announce their playoff roster, which should be sometime soon. Looking at the last few days, it's usually been announced before or around noon Eastern, so... Keep an eye on Twitter, keep an eye out for that news, and we'll likely know if Lamette or Clevenger are on the roster. They could be eligible for Game 1, but considering we don't even know their health, unless they're holding their cards really close to their chest, I wouldn't expect to see them. It's probably going to be Paddock or an opener if they want to go down that route. Let's say, though, Paddock's the most likely going up against Walker Bueller, who looks really good to start his last time out against the Brewers. I think it's hard not to go with the Dodgers here, especially since we don't know who's going for the Padres. Bit of a weird prediction to make, but I will go with the Dodgers. In their head-to-head matchup, I thought they played each other really well this season. Uh, They nearly split the season series uh, with the number of games that they played. So I do go Los Angeles over San Diego in this one, but that being said, I anticipate this being a very interesting series, a very entertaining series. Hey man, we talked about the home run being king so far. The San Diego Padres are no stranger to the long ball, but neither are the Los Angeles Dodgers. It's going to be a fun, fun series, whether it goes the distance of seven games or not. Uh, But Walker Buehler, you've known he was going to be the guy to start this game for so long that I think you're just more comfortable if you're the Los Angeles Dodgers. You've been here before. You know what you need to do to handle business. I think they take game one over the Friars. Well, that'll be it for our time today. Tune in tomorrow for another show. We'll recap all four games today. We'll preview all four games tomorrow. You can keep up with our show on Twitter, at Trip Morning, and find us on Instagram as well, at Morning Round Trip. And as I said, we will be here again tomorrow. 
For Drew Frank and Liam Carruthers, thank you for listening and have a great day.